coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Ladies and gentlemen, it seems in today's world, our lives are just a series of battles. Our country's in a battle, our work is a battle, even raising a family is a battle. And based on that, we really need to get a grip on how to manage life's challenges. My two guests on the show today are going to tell us how to lead and win in life. Two qualities that America seems to be forgetting these days. And these guys should know because they led SEAL Team 3's Task Unit Bruiser through combat in the Battle of Ramadi. They are recipients of the Silver Star Medal, but in simple terms, they are just extraordinary warriors who now bring their mindset and strategy to us mere mortals. Their weapons of choice today are their wisdom and their experience. Their new book called Extreme Ownership could very well be the Bible for today's battles. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Welcome, guys. Good to be here, Vip. Thank you. Thanks, Vip. Thanks for having us. Oh, I love that voice. Congratulations on the new book, Extreme Ownership. What does the title mean? Because you've got the word extreme. We don't use that word much anymore. Well, the title came from the fact that in a leadership position, Mm. you really have to take ownership of everything in your world. And what that means is you can't make any excuses. You can't cast any blame Mm. on anybody else. You have to just say, if something goes wrong, it's my fault. I'm going to figure out what the problem is, and I'm going to get it solved. Too much today in today's society and in business, you know, people, they just make excuses when something goes wrong. You know, if, if things didn't go the way I wanted them to, I'm going to look at my subordinates and say, oh, you guys messed this up. You didn't do it right. That's your fault. Or we look up the chain of command at our boss and say, oh, the boss didn't give me the support that I need. So therefore, I couldn't accomplish the mission. Somebody that, that uses extreme ownership, they take ownership. <laughs> they say, you know what? This isn't my subordinate's fault. It's not my boss's fault. It's my fault. I didn't explain it to my subordinates well enough. They didn't understand what the mission was, so they couldn't get it done. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't explain up the chain of command, so they couldn't give me the support that I needed. They didn't realize what was important. I didn't educate them. I, I didn't convince them that this is what I needed, so they didn't give it to me. So effectively what you're saying is share the success but own the failure. Yeah. And, I mean, as much as you can, you actually don't even share the success. You try and give the success to your, to your team. Right, yeah, that's what I meant. You know, right. Share it with your right. team. Right, right, right. right. Now, what inspired you guys to write the book? Well, Jocko and I came back from the Battle of Ramadi. Mm-hmm. And in our SEAL task unit, we, we lost the first SEALs killed in action in the Iraq War. It was, it was a tough, tough thing, tough burden to bear. Um, and we, we had that tragedy uh, to deal with. We also had some, some incredible triumphs where we helped the 1st Armored Division, the soldiers and Marines uh, that were out there that turned a city that was a total war zone where almost no one thought we could win. And we turned, you know, we turned that place around. So we took a lot of lessons learned back from that deployment. And Jocko and I were both in positions where uh, we ran leadership training for the SEAL teams uh, for a number of years afterwards. So we taught the, the the next generation of SEAL leaders, everything we wish someone had taught us prior to, to, to going and, and being in those those situations. So people always ask us, like, hey, can you write this stuff down? You know, can we record this so that we can reference it and have it with us? And then once we got out in, into the civilian world, Jocko retired, and I left at, at the 13-year mark. Um, for about the last four years now, we, we've had our company, Echelon Front, where we, we, we teach leadership to the civilian world and companies. And the same same type people are asking us those questions of, hey, can you write this down for us? Um, you know, these principles are really impactful. Uh, is there a reference that I can use? And so that's really where the idea for this book came from. We finally wrote them down, and, and the result is, is the book. But at what point did you guys realize that you could bring what was a military strategy to a civilian strategy? 
it didn't take long at all. The first company I ever went and spoke to, within you know an hour of talking to them, I realized that what they had was a group of people, a group of diverse people with their own minds, with their own ideas, and mm-hmm. they had to unify those people and accomplish a mission. Well, guess what you're doing in the military? You're doing the exact same thing. You're taking a diverse group of people. Now, people think that people in the military are, are you know, Terminator robots and you tell them what to do and they're just going to do it because you told them it's not true they're people they're human beings and so they're going to have those same you know resistance to ideas they're going to be motivated by some things but not motivated by other things and so sitting down with a company for the first time I realized very quickly hey what we taught in the military about leadership the principles remain the same in the civilian world you know there are hundreds of thousands of books on leadership is this just another one of them with a different spin on it or you guys actually think you're bringing something different I think we are bringing something different, and this is – I mean, the, the difference is this. One, we're talking about some real-world experiences that are exciting to read. And so every chapter in this book opens up with a battlefield scenario where bullets are flying around or explosions are going off, and we're having to make decisions under under the pressure of urban combat and the chaos that that, uh, that comes with that. Uh, and then we talk about that principle and then how it applies uh, to the business world in, 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 another, in the, uh, each chapter. We're talking about that scenario. So I think the other thing that's different about this book is that we wanted to make sure that th- these, this was told in a way that uh, mo- a lot of these stories we wrote about, write about are humbling. I mean, th- these are incredibly humbling situations. We made mistakes, failures, and we have to write about this stuff. So, uh, because that's where we, we learned such a huge lesson, you know, from that. And uh, and so, um, you know, with that, Jocko and I wanted to make sure we wrote it ourselves, and it wasn't just a, a, you know we sat down with an author and told our story, and mm-hmm. they kind of wrote whatever they want. We want to make sure we controlled this. So we took the time over the last couple of years to actually write this ourselves and tell it in a way um, that that was meaningful and impactful in the way that we learned this stuff in the humbling way. Uh, and so, you know, to pass these lessons learned. And, and they're not – this is not complex rocket science stuff. This is not theory learned in a classroom. It is, it is uh, as, as Jocko likes to say, simple but not easy. That's, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it might be uh, kind of elemental and, mm-hmm. and, and seem, uh, you know, not, not super complex, but it's, it's very difficult to implement. And so, uh, you know, I, when people, people look at this, they're like, oh, that's, that's kind of simple or that's common sense. Then my answer to them is, yeah, but why aren't you doing it? And so, you know, that's a lot of what we do in our company and what we're doing with this book is, is encouraging people to do the things they know they probably should be doing, but for whatever, whatever reason they're not. And that, but, that's the thing about the, the – another thing about the book is, you know, yeah, it's cool combat stories. They're, they're exciting to read. Right. But also when you see these leadership mistakes happen in combat, it, it just impacts you so much more because it impacted us more. You know, if you make a mistake in business, you might lose some money. You know, you might lose some market. And that's bad, and obviously. But you make a mistake in combat and people get killed. And so those mistakes show up very clearly. And that makes the principles show up very clearly. And I think that's why people, as they read the stories of combat, they say, oh, I, I kind of see what they're saying. I know how this applies to me. And that's why we're getting such great feedback about it. So in, uh, based on your experience, if I asked you to narrow down everything you knew, what are the three components of successful leadership that being a U.S. Navy SEAL taught you guys? I think it's pretty hard to narrow it down to, mm. to something that's, uh, you know, people ask us that time, like, hey, what, are, you know, what are the five steps I can follow to lead like a Navy SEAL? And what we generally tell people is, like, it, it, would, it would be awesome if it were that easy. 
uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's difficult and it, it's it's challenging as a leader to. Uh, um, and it's it's there's a lot of nuances that you have to deal with, mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's not black or white. It's gray. Uh, there's a lot of gray area, um, and so uh, you know you have to you have to make those decisions. And what this does is give you some guiding principles. And I would say you know if you're going to take three things away from uh, from this book and implement them immediately uh, to to give you those guiding principles. First is extreme ownership, owning everything in your world to stop making excuses if, if you're not performing the way you need to as an individual, if your team's not doing what they need to do uh, and, and not getting the job done. Uh, and we really we talk about there's only two measures of effectiveness. It, it, it's a, it's, there's two, only two measures that matter. It's effective or ineffective. Those are the only real two measures that matter. And, and, and so um, the first is extreme ownership, so you can, you can deal with that. Uh, and the second, I think, is cover and move, which is we see a lot of big issues with. Cover and move is teamwork, and it's a gunfight principle where, you know, if, if Jocko and I are trying to move across an urban city street under fire, you know, in downtown Ramadi, I'm laying down suppressive fire for him and covering for him so that he can move safely, and then he will do the same for me so that I can move safely. We're mutually supporting one another to accomplish a mission. And that, while it's a gunfighting tactic, that's just teamwork. And so you know, every company, every team we work with, individuals are not out there on their own. You, you depend on other people. And if you can get people focused on the mission uh, and mutually support one another to accomplish the mission, to see it's not just about them mm. and, and their ego or their personal agenda. It's about the mission and how to best accomplish it. Then they can work together as a team. And that's a classic issue that we see. And I would say the, you know, the third thing is, is just the humility to constantly have – a continuous self-assessment and sometimes brutally honest self-assessment of, of how you're doing, how your team's doing, so that you can always learn and grow and get better and you're never satisfied with performance. And I think those, you know, those three things right there are just, you know, are, are fundamentals that can, that can certainly guide you along the path. Now, you know, you know life is a battle. And, and if I was to use that analogy, in every battle you have three components at least. You have a strategy, you have a weapon of choice, and you have the enemy. So as individuals, how should we approach each one of them? Well, for me, the, the most important, I think, individual characteristic that a person has to have next to humility, which we just talked about, but then I talk a lot about discipline. Mm-hmm. And being a disciplined person, I, I have a ma- mantra that is discipline equals freedom. So the more disciplined you are as a person, the more freedom you're going to have. And some easy examples of that are if you want to have financial freedom, then you need to have financial discipline. And if you want to have uh, more free time, Mm -hmm. then you have to have more disciplined time management if you want to have more free time. So I think discipline is is one of the first keys to what what to do as an individual in the world. So then what, what is the enemy then? Is that our objective in terms of getting getting over? I'll tell you, for me, mm. most of the time, the enemy is yourself. The enemy that, that's holding you back, that's making you fail, is yourself. It's you know you're you're making mistakes. You're you don't have the humility to admit what they are, so you can't even identify them. You're getting too absorbed in what's happening, and you're not detaching from from yourself, so you can see what things look like. That's very good. And <laughs> so. so you know, I think that you need to be able to detach. And I think that when you detach, mm. you can identify yourself that usually you're the one that's causing the problems in your own life. And that's that's something that we dealt with on the battlefield. It's one of those things where people, 
people don't really Jocko and I used to talk about it as like an 80-20 rule you right. know of like we're and, and we were going into the nastiest most dangerous neighborhoods in Ramadi where there were thousands of hardcore jihadi fighters that were determined and th- these guys were good they were good they were they were experienced the real world uh, you know experience of years of fighting against US forces uh, that had taken up the city and so when we even though in that environment we went out there I only spent about 20% of my time worried about what those guys were going to do we, we spent about 80% of our time worried about uh, what we were going to do and, and trying to make sure we weren't doing something stupid that was going to get us shot by friendly aircraft that thought we were an in, enemy force or, or the tanks down the street that were, they were getting shot at by enemy. But now we show up in a place where they didn't expect us to be. But, but that 80% focus was to make sure that we didn't get in a friendly fire incident or something bad didn't happen. And so I could control that. And so that was really where our focus was. And that's really where the enemy is. The greatest enemy is yourself, just as Jock was saying. And that's, that applies with, you know, whether you're leading a business team, whether you're talking about your own individual life, you know, as a husband, as a dad, or, or you know, a spouse, or, or a, as, a, as an employee, and to, you are the greatest enemy, and you got you to control that. Some of the leaders, leadership books have said that success is 1% strategy and 99% action. Do you guys agree with that? The fact of the matter is you need to think about what you're doing. You need to have a plan, and that takes up probably a little bit more than 1%. That being said, you have to absolutely execute and have action. Otherwise, you won't move forward ever. So I think probably what that's a warning against is over-planning, which we definitely saw a lot of over-planning where people will sit around and strategize and try and figure out you know, the solution to every last possibility that might happen. Well, the reality is, you, you know, you need to come up with a good plan, and then you need to execute it. How you throw those percentages around, right. I'm not 100% sure. But a good plan is only a good plan once you achieve success, right? No doubt. No doubt. And as I talked about, those, those measures, you know, it's effective or ineffective. So if the plan is not accomplishing the mission, you've got to have the humility to say, okay, we're going to have to redirect this plan. We're going to have to do something different in order to achieve the outcome that, that we want and, and, and mission success. From a business perspective, taking it from the U.S. Navy SEAL side, um, does the end result also have to be able to change? Because, you know, if you guys are, say, out on a mission and you're not able to fully accomplish it, then at least you come away saying, you know what, at least we can achieve 40 percent of it or 50 percent of it. Well, you're certainly not going to – you're not going to win every time. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's kind of this myth that, like, well, the SEALs are so great and they always accomplish their mission. And, look, the reality is you don't always accomplish your mission. We went on, we went on plenty of targets where we hit a building where we thought a bad guy was going to be. We were trying to capture or kill him, and he wasn't there. Right. And, and we missed him for whatever reason. Or maybe we even hit the wrong target. Or I mean, those things happen. And so you've got to be humble enough to, to come back and talk about, you know, that, that's where you learn those lessons and say, hey, uh, how did this happen? Let's prevent that from happening again. And, and I think what you're alluding to there is flexibility, and you absolutely have to be flexible um, because that really goes to a principle that we, we write about here called prioritize and execute, which is one of our four laws of combat that we teach SEAL leaders. And, uh, and that's, a, you know, th- that's four chapters out of this book is those laws of combat. And that, that is prioritize and execute. So it, you know, when there's a lot of things going on, you've got to be able to take a step back, the detachment Jocko was talking about, 
analyze what's the greatest priority and then get the team executing toward that priority. But you can't get so fixated on that priority that you're, you're not able to rapidly shift as the priority changes because the battlefield is constantly changing, changing all the time, just as life is constantly changing all the time. So you've got to, you know, what you thought was important one second ago, uh, you may have to, you, you may have to totally detach and, and, and redirect the team or redirect yourself on, a, on another priority uh, and get back to the, you know, the previous priority later. And when, when you see people locked into a strategy mm-hmm. and they're not changing it, that's ego. It's someone's ego saying, you know what, this is my plan. This is what I came up with and I'm sticking to it until, you know, I die. I've got to be right. <laughs> I've got to be right. And you know, we, we see that. We saw it in the SEAL teams. Um, we, we've seen it as a nation at some points and but, we definitely see it in businesses. But some people might say, well, they have a certain level of faith in, in, in their mission um, because, you know, history has shown that sometimes you do fail, but if you have right purpose of mind and, and you have faith in what you're doing, ultimately you'll win. And I think what you're talking about is a, is a true strategic vision mm. of where we're going to end up. And and you're right. That really shouldn't change over time. I mean, you've got a clear strategic vision of what you want to accomplish. How you get there, you know, there's many, many battles fought in a war. Right. And the, it's those smaller battles that I'm talking about where you might need to change your tactics and adjust and adapt and, and that goal may shift. Of course, that long strategic vision of victory absolutely has to stay there. It's one thing to persevere through challenges, uh, but would you, you, you can have those people that are literally like on the Titanic as it's sinking saying, uh, no, everything's great. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, it's under control. So you can't, you can't have folks that are just in complete denial of reality, uh, and you, you've got to be humble enough to say, hey, this isn't working. We're going to have to redirect. But certainly having that vision and, and perseverance through challenges, there's going to be challenges that come up. And so you've got to, you've got to believe in it. That's, that's, uh, that's something else we talk about, of believing in what you're doing so that you can persevere through those challenges. Now, both you guys, you know, to me, look like you've sort of obviously faced brutal truth of war. Did you bring that language into your book? Is it, is it brutally true what you're saying? And I, the reason I'm asking is, did you have to contain or better manage your advice in the book? Because you know what? We live in a delicate world today. Everything has to be politically correct. So did you have to manage your, your reader's expectation or sense of communication. This book is about war in mm-hmm. many respects, and war is about killing people. And we definitely talk about it in this book. And I don't think we sugarcoated that at all. And look, I think for those of us that served, and you know, people watch what ISIS is doing today and think, oh, these people are horrible. I mean, these are, those are the same people we were fighting. They changed their name, but it's it's the same enemy. And and this 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 jihadi, uh, you know, these these the radical Islamic jihad movement that we're we're fighting against in in, in the war on terror. I mean, this is this is an evil an enemy as America has ever faced uh, in our long history. And I'm well aware of the, the evils of some some of our other enemies in in in, in uh, centuries past. So uh, this is we we absolutely believe in in what we're doing certainly believe then and and continue to believe in what we're doing uh, that we're good against evil and and making a difference and we saw that difference in the impact that we made and so we don't sugarcoat that anyway i mean we're we're definitely uh, pretty direct about that i don't think i don't think anybody that knows us will ever accuse me or jocko of being politically correct uh you know in that regard when you guys came back from the war did you find that america's becoming or developing a softer mindset than it needs to. Absolutely. 
I think that uh, I think particularly when you see that in much of the media today, mm-hmm. they didn't want to cover. They didn't actually want to cover some of the evil that I'm talking about. So that so that now when people see it with ISIS, you know, people are being burned alive in cages or tortured or crucified or all these horrible things that are happening. And anyone who actually served on the front lines in Iraq would be like, yeah, absolutely. Of course, they're doing these things. They've been doing them for years. Why? It's not news to anyone. But yet now it's now it's out in the media. Now people are just kind of starting to have to come to terms with that. And and I think a lot of Americans want to just, frankly, bury their heads in the sand mm-hmm. and think that we can just ignore those kind of problems, that they're not going to come here and uh, and come after us. And that's just not true. And that's where true leadership is required to step up and help people understand why it's necessary for us to, to, to go out and take these enemies on, uh, you know, in distant places across the globe so that, that uh, we can defend America. And, and do true leaders see only black and white? Because there seems to be a lot of gray in our society these days. Well, there's a lot of gray. And I, I'll go back to what we were talking about before. I think mm. in your long-term vision, you know, in this case, you've got to see that there's black and white. There's good and evil. There, there truly is evil. Leif and I have seen evil with our own eyes over and over again. And it's real and it exists. And so that is black and white. Uh, but when you, when you are adjusting and adapting to maneuver through a long-term strategy, there's going to be some gray. You know, there's going to be, you know, you, you can look at the, 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 the Iraqis that we worked with while we were in Iraq. Some of the guys that were our biggest supporters were literally targeted by U.S. forces earlier because they were nefarious. And so there's going to and, and what we're going to do, hold them accountable for some actions that they took three years ago when now they were turning into our biggest supporters. You got to you've got to adapt. You've got to have an open mind. Really, you've got to have an open mind to understand the nuances of these situations. And they're going to change and morph and you've got to change and morph with them. So good and bad, taking that to the civilian world, when, if you're working uh, in, in a business or something, good is profit and evil is loss. Well, I think there's nuances to that as well. I mean, are you, are you doing a great job um, if you're making a bunch of money, but your employees are suffering and they're not going to – or you're producing something that's, that's dangerous to people? You know, and, and that will eventually hurt you in the long run. I mean, if you don't take care of your employees, eventually they're not going to work hard for you and you're going to end up losing profit anyways. So there is there is some truth to that. But in real life, have we ever met an overjoyed employee? <laughs> I think we, we meet them all the time and we work with companies all the time. And generally, uh, for people that can see the bigger picture, what they're trying to do. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're. Most people probably show up to work, punch a clock, you know, whatever it is, and, and try to just get through the day. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, but there are people that are part of teams where they, they feel like we're not here just to make a profit. We're here to change the world, and we're making an impact, and that's those, those are the best performing teams out there. Let's talk about schools because I think leadership starts from a very young age. We don't sort of have the same system of what the Spartans did where they sort of made – children into leaders from a very young age right now like you know if my if my son uh, participates in a school activity everybody gets a prize but real life isn't like that and 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 does your book support that theory or doesn't it we don't really talk about education Mm -hmm. during our book but i think it's pretty evident from you know the way we push each other as seals that everything's a competition 
You know, every time you do anything with another SEAL, there's a competition happening. Whether we're going for a run or we're going for a workout or we're on the range shooting, you're in a competition and you're doing everything you can to win. We, we have a joke that says if there's more than one guy running, there's a, it's a race. And, and that's the way it is. And so that, that's something that helps drive us to success. And, of course, we've got to be able to work together. Um, and, in fact, the first time I met Jocko, actually, when, when I, we checked in together at SEAL Team 3, we were going on a run on, on the beach. And, uh, you know, Jocko, Jocko's a big guy, outweighs me by about 40 pounds or so. That's and why I'm being very nice on the show today. Yes. I, pa- I passed him on the run. You know, there's a lot of things, Jocko, if we're talking throwing weights around, he's going to destroy me. But, but uh, on the run, I was, I was beating him, and I went past him. I was like, Jocko, you run pretty good for a big guy. And he just looks at me with this, like, I'll rip your head off look. <laughs> so, I, you know, that, that's, that's where that competition – and even though, you know, hey, we work together, we're here to support each other. But that competition drives us to get better and improve because we want to win. We don't want to lose. We don't want to come in second place. And that's, that's something that helps us in the SEAL teams. It helps the U.S. military. I think it helps in any company and individuals as well. Um, and so I, I think we've got to push people that it's not just a reward for showing up like, hey, uh, you know, that I, that to me just breeds this kind of just kind of an entitlement culture, right, of of, uh, of like, well, I'm here. Uh, I'm I'm at work, so I should get a raise. You know, I've but been don't here. you see that prevailing in American society? These I do. Days? I do see that. I think that kind of mentality is, uh, as you said, it's something that's being programmed into kids at school. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think we've got to drive. Uh, we've got to drive competition so that people understand that. Like, listen, success is not going to be handed to you. You got to go out there and earn it, and you're going to have to work your tail off to do that. Because I don't think we know what success looks like anymore. Whether it's what the politicians tell us about the war, or, or even as simple as, as as being in school. What do you What do you think? I think. You know, I got I got several kids in school right mm-hmm. now, and I'll tell you what, they work harder than I ever did in school. I, I'll be honest with you. They are doing homework for four, five, six hours a night, and it's it's very impressive. Now, at the same time, some of their friends, they're barely participating in school, and, and I see that happening. I've tried to instill in them that what they do today mm-hmm. will pay off tenfold in the future. And I think that's the problem with a lot of kids is they don't connect – the present day with the future. And so they think, oh, I can just have a good time today and it won't impact me. But the reality is if you don't work hard now in your future, you're going to have to work hard for a lot longer. Hmm. For these kids, what would you say they should, what are the three most effective habits that these kids should develop or anyone should develop that all effective leaders have? Again, we're, t- we're talking about humility, number one, mm-hmm. because you've got to be humble. If you're going to move through the world as a, as a good human being and definitely as a good leader, you've got to have humility. I think you've got to be highly disciplined. And then the last thing I think is you've got to, you've got to have this balance, this balance. And we, again, we talk about it in the book. We call it the dichotomy, in the, leader, the dichotomy of leadership in the book. And that's that there's all these opposing forces, that, that all these opposing um, ways that you can act as a leader. For instance... As a leader, you've got to be aggressive, right? You, you have to be aggressive if you're going right. to get your mission accomplished. That being said, you can be too aggressive and you can be overbearing. First of all, you can be too aggressive on the battlefield or in the, in the marketplace and you can, you can put yourself in a bad situation and get killed. But also, just as an attitude, you can be too aggressive with your subordinates where now they don't share their ideas with you. They don't give you anything extra. They don't, they don't talk to you about what's happening, what they see and what their perspective is. And that's very problematic as well. So as a leader, you have to balance between being aggressive 
and being overbearing. And you've got to find that balance. And it's it's not just that. There's dozens and dozens of examples. And I think that's what's the most difficult thing about being a leader is finding that balance. How do you get that um, how do you get that source of energy to to maintain discipline? I mean, you know, I think everyone knows pretty much what they need to do. But every day, day in, day out, rotating the same wheel in order to get to where you need to, where do you get that energy to maintain that discipline? I think it's just keeping it's just keeping uh, an eye on the strategic picture, as Jocko said. Looking looking toward the future and mm. knowing that what I'm doing now is going to pay off in, in the future, and so that helps you persevere through those challenges, like we talked about earlier. Um, and I think keeping in mind what the strategic picture is is key. And that's we talk about that with leadership. Look, you know, you've got to get people to understand not just what they're doing, but why why they're doing it, why it's important to do that. And that's something that, I mean, that that's people people can persevere and, and have that energy to, to continue to, to be disciplined uh, in the smallest things if they understand why it's important and that it pays off in the long run. I'll tell you another thing that I've used to explain this to people, and that is when you're shooting a gun, all right, if you look at that target that's far away and you focus on it, mm-hmm. eventually your eyes, they become blurry. And, and, what you need to do is in you, you look at the, the sight of your weapon. You bring your vision closer right. because you can focus on that. And that's exactly what happens with, with goals and what people have for a vision. If your vision is 10 years in the future, yeah, that can be hard to maintain a, a focus on. But if you set that vision in the long-term future and now you say, you know what? What, what can I do in the immediate? What, what am I going to do this day, this hour, maybe this week, maybe even this month? What are you going to accomplish this month? So you focus on those short-term goals, but you keep that long-term vision out in the future. And you, you look at it occasionally to make sure you know it's still there and that's, that you're still heading in the right direction. But again, you can lose focus of that. You've got to come into those short-range goals and focus every – I mean, that's what drives me every day. So let's say if you have a five-year plan, break it down into six-month plans that lead you to the five-year plan. Right. And beyond the six-month, what are you going to do today? You know, I want to be healthy. So guess what? I work out every day. And that's – do I feel like working out every single day of the week? Not really. I'd probably feel like working out five or six out of seven. But what about that other day? I'm still going to get on it because i got a long-term vision. When you're at that moment of weakness where you feel, I don't feel like doing it today, what in your mind – changes your opinion how do you tune yourself that if i feel weak this is what i'm going to say to myself and then this is what's going to happen well one of the biggest things that drives me is having served with leif overseas in combat we lost our friends and they didn't get the opportunity that we have they didn't get to come back and get to work out so every time that i feel like oh maybe i'm not going to carry through with this i think of those guys and they're they got my back and they're pushing me to do it Now, this book is about success, but you know what? Before you succeed, you fail. So, Leif, can you give us some personal examples of what you failed at and what it taught you? Absolutely. I mean, we, I've, made, I've made all kinds of mistakes, and that's, this book is largely about that because in, in a big way, failure is, is the best teacher because, you know, when you succeed, it's easy to just pat each other on the back and say, hey, we did a great job. But when you, when you fail at something or you didn't achieve the mission or something bad happened, uh, that's when you got to really hard look in the, in the mirror really hard and say, man – how can I get better? And you remember that stuff. And, and so um, that's that's something that we had to deal with quite a bit. I, I think the, the biggest thing for me is um, 
I would say one of the biggest lessons learned I took back from our combat deployment to Ramadi is when we got back after all of the bloody battles that we fought and all the combat that we were a part of, you know, hundreds of operations for our task unit. You know, we'd lost uh, we'd lost uh, our, our brothers, two guys killed in action, another one severely wounded who later died of of wounds. And uh, and that was hard. I mean, that was tough stuff. But we we knew we'd made a difference. We knew we'd had some impact. And Jocko, uh, when we got back, he was asked to, to put together a brief to present to um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs our, and our, our, our chief of naval operations, so the most senior military officers, and to talk about how SEALs supported uh, you know, these operations in Ramadi and, and, and what, what those were about. And he put together this slide, which was a map of Ramadi that showed it was, it was basically the red areas that were completely controlled by you know, what was then called al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is ISIS today. Um, and the areas that they controlled of the city. And they controlled two-thirds of the city when we first got there in the, the spring of 2006. And at at, uh, at the end of it, we control those areas now because U.S. troops had gone in there and built combat outposts, and we supported those guys with our snipers and pushing Iraqi soldiers out. So uh, watching this this map that Jocko had put together and seeing the blue circles of, of U.S. combat outposts go into those what used to have been red al-Qaeda and Iraq battle space, I could see – the difference that we'd made. And it was it was crazy to me because uh, I had led almost every single one of those operations. So I was intimately involved in the planning of them. And uh, and yet I hadn't put it all together in a way that really showed me, wow, that's really what all of that effort was about and, and the contribution that we were able to make. And so if I didn't really fully get it, mm. you know, then, and I certainly couldn't expect my most junior guy who had no really hand in the planning but just showed up to a brief after he was out working on vehicles or maintenancing his weapon to walk into a brief and say, hey – what the hell do these guys come up with today? You know, so he has no idea all of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing, the risk mitigation that went into that, and and you know intelligence that we analyzed, um, and so he didn't have any of that perspective. So I realized if I didn't even fully grasp it, I couldn't expect those guys to. And so, uh, you know, looking back on it, the people who you know we had, we had a few guys toward the end of our deployment that were just frankly burned out. It was a tough deployment, and uh, you know uh, uh, there were there were a handful of guys that were just ready to go home. I mean, they, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd done a great job and they'd given their all. Um, but I, I looked at that and I saw those guys who, uh, who would have stayed another six months beyond when, you know, when we, we came home and eager to go out and operate, continue operating, they actually had some ownership of the plan. They, they had some ownership. They understood why what we were doing what we were doing. The guys who were negative and, and didn't, you know, didn't actually believe in what we were doing or maybe didn't fully grasp it, uh, they had had no ownership. So you know, I, I could have done a lot better job of explaining to them why we were doing what we were doing and, and giving them some ownership of even the smallest piece of the plan so that they had buy-in, they understood why, and, and I think that would have gone a long way. That was a big lesson learned for me. So you took ownership of that failure. Is, is that what you're saying? It is. And unfortunately, that was too late right, at that point because we were already back in the States. But, you know, we but, were home, and I, I had the same feeling. I'm sitting there putting this brief up in front of Leif, and he was, you know, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we did all that. And I was kind of like, wow, I really let him down to not have him fully read mm-hmm. in on all this. And I, I, I saw it. I mean, when you put it up there for the first time, you go, wow, that, that's impressive. And it's, it's impressive. And I kind of knew it. I mean, I knew it. But I definitely didn't push it down the way I should have. And that was my fault. And he could have pushed it down further and we would have had the guys in much better uh, mental 
state throughout the deployment. And certainly there's some there's some uh, element of that recognition that only kind of time and perspective is going right. to provide, obviously. But uh, but I think uh, that was a big lesson learned for us. And that's something we help, you know, with the leaders that we work with today. Because, you know, when they think that their company gets, you know, that, that the, the team gets mm. the company's mission, their strategy, you know, you have to explain to them, listen, if you think they, they understand it a whole lot, I'm telling you, it's very, very little that they actually do. But then as leaders, then do we owe it to ourselves to understand that every team member has a separate resilience factor? Because when the going gets tough, then not everybody gets going. It's true. That is true. It's true. Certainly. So you really have to know each and every team member and, and almost psychoanalyze that what is their threshold. No doubt. And that's different for different people. And that's mm-hmm. something that leaders have to have to weigh in the balance. But what can help that is is helping people understand why they're doing what they're doing and, and, and leaders that have belief in the mission and translate that belief in a, w- a manner that's simple, clear, concise, so the team can understand it. And when the frontline troops, when they believe in what they're doing, they're going to they're going to run through fire to make that happen and accomplish the mission. Now, you guys have a company, Echelon Front. What does it mean and what does it do? Echelon Front is uh, – we, de- we, we had a hard time trying to come up with a name for our company. What was this going to be? And we mm. talked about all these different things. And, uh, you know, we realized that the stuff we're talking about is directly from the forward line of battle. And so Echelon is just an organized unit or group and, and uh, Front being the forward line of battle. So, so we, we, we thought what, what – that's that's the best name we can use to describe that. It's also the opposite of in the military. We talk about the rear echelon, and those are the people that are far away from the front lines right. that don't really understand what's going on, uh, you know. And they they uh, oftentimes pass judgment on the front line troops. So would that be the general public? Well, in some ways, yes, but we also have plenty of folks in the military, too. I mean, there were plenty of senior officers, uh, even within our own SEAL community, uh, much less in, in the greater U.S. military, who, uh, you know, who made snide comments or said that what we were, we were doing wasn't a soft mission or, you know, and those kind of things. And it's, you know, for us, it was like they, they clearly just they're not here to see what we're doing. They, they don't really fully understand it. And uh, and they never ask us about it. Um, and so they're not even taking the time to try to understand what we're doing. And they certainly didn't grasp the mission and what we were able to accomplish, how we were able to contribute to an amazing victory uh, that, that was, you know, delivered by the soldiers and Marines of the, the Ready First Brigade, First Armored Division. So what, what, what services do you provide through this echelon front? We come in as consultants and we talk about the leadership uh, principles and teamwork principles that enable SEALs to succeed on the battlefield and how that translates to business and life. And so we do the same thing that we did really for uh, for our SEAL leaders when Jock and I were running those SEAL, the, the, that training um, for our SEAL leaders. And we do the same thing for business leaders uh, that are interested in, in, in turning you know their, their company into a high-performance winning team. Winning and leading, that's what you guys, that's your philosophy. I wanted to ask you, in today's world, because I think we're extra soft in today's world, um, do your tactics have any conflict with the way business is being conducted? I mean, you know what? There's so much litigation going around with employees and things like that. Uh, my fear is that if we push our employees too hard, they'll come back to bite us. Classic example, mm. since you're talking about employees, is HR and human resources. Right. Now, People think that in the military and even in the SEAL teams, oh, if you've got someone that doesn't, you know, that that causes problems, you Mm -hmm. can just immediately get rid of them. You can fire them on the spot. Absolutely not true. If someone's causing problems, you have to take them, you have to counsel them, you have to write paperwork about them. 
and you have to document what their problems are so that you can eventually bring them before a board where they can review and see if they should actually be fired or not. That's the military. I, I know you're looking at me like, are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. That is true. The, and when I got in the – so from my military perspective, I always mm. thought, oh, in the civilian world, they've got it made. Because if someone's not doing their job and they're an employee, boom, you just fire them. As you know, that is completely not true. You have to go through HR. You have to, you have to document. You have to do the exact same thing. So that's an example of the complete similarities between the, the civilian sector and the military. And it just – the correlations are – they're almost uncanny how many correlations there are between what we did in the military and what we find in the civilian sector. That's one example, and there's thousands. Well, let me see if I get this right. You're a team of U.S. Navy SEALs. You're going on a mission. One of you in your team is, is, is not doing well, and you're, you're planning to get him out. But you can't take him out before that mission's over because of all this paperwork that's going on. Well, if you if you put an extreme example like that, mm. then as the leader of that situation, if we had a guy that was that much of – first of all, he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't have gotten to that point where we're getting ready to go on a mission and he's, and he's a problem to have on a mission. He wouldn't have gotten that far. He, we would weed him out during the training. If we were in a combat situation, there was a guy that was that much of a hindrance to us, yeah, you, as a leader, you'd say, you know what? This guy's not going to go and you'd leave him behind and you'd probably take some flack for that, but it's the right thing to do. Let's go back to our country, guys. You guys are patriots. What, what, what do you think is wrong with our country today? Why should the country read this book? I see a tremendous lack of extreme ownership, and uh, particularly in the halls of power. He's Washington. such a good marketer, isn't he, of the book? That's brilliantly <laughs> well, said. Well, look, it's, I mean, I, I think there's no better way to describe that uh, than, than just nobody wants to take ownership of anything. And when we look at what's going on in the world um, – you know, I, I have to wonder, like, are these guys reading the same newspapers or watching the same news that, that I am? Uh, because when, when you hear things like from, from our president talking about, well, Russia's acting in Syria out of weakness. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just we are, we are unable uh, as a nation to, to take a hard look in the mirror and say uh, that brutally honest, realistic self-assessment is what we're doing working? Is the strategy what we're doing work? And, and the, the answer is absolutely not. Russia's running circles around us right now. You know, China's on the move. We don't like reality checks anymore, do we? No, we don't. We don't. And people want to just deny. They want to blame. They want to make excuses to try to put political spin. But true leaders don't care about the immediate political gain. Uh, they care about the long-term success of our nation. And so if we had true leaders that were making decisions in that regard, I think you'd be seeing us doing things a lot differently. What do you have to say to that, Joko? You know, rather than commenting about what's wrong with America, I like to look at what's right with America. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think you, you find from, from American servicemen and women, you know, they generally have a, have a positive view of America. Why is that? It's because they've been around the world. They've seen what the rest of the world is like up close and personal. And they realize the greatness, the freedom that we have in America and as a nation how powerful we are that we can influence the world. And as individuals, you're, you're just – you have so many opportunities. It's cliche, but guess what? In America, you can do whatever you want. And when you see countries that are oppressed, you truly appreciate the freedom that we have in America and you know that it's worth fighting for. But uh, what I appreciated about Leif was that when he said, you know, everything is very hazy. I mean, we're never told whether we're winning a war or not. It's always – 
a sort of a cloud of words. And we never know if you're actually succeeding or failing. And there's always a debate whenever the White House gives a message. Are we winning the war or are we not? And, and that's where I think from a civilian perspective we get lost because then the media distorts depending on what they want to say. No doubt. And I think that's where being able to actually confront the facts, not as you mm. wish them to be, but the facts as they actually are, you know, is key. And, and, and true leaders have to do that. They, they can't just whitewash things and try to spin it. You know, uh, they, they have to actually confront those issues. Um, you know, for, for us, uh, people ask us all the time about ISIS. Like, what are we going to do about ISIS? Why does that matter? I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to put some measures of effectiveness over, uh, you know, on, on ISIS. And you can see that by the, the amount of, of real estate that they control. You know, when they, they claim that caliphate and their, their motto is, uh, you know, is, 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 is uh, surviving and expanding. They, they are, uh, they're, uh, if we take that away from them, if we take some of that real estate away from them, take some back, back some of these key cities, that is devastating to them strategically. I mean, that, that impacts their, their mission in a big way. The other thing you can, you can, you can measure is the number of, of recruits from outside you know, the, the region that are coming and joining the fight there. And let me tell you, if we start handing them some strategic defeats and a lot of those fighters start getting killed, you're going to see that recruitment, uh, you know, particularly from Western countries and other parts of the world, just, just go to, to virtually zero. And so those are easy measures of effectiveness. They're not 20 feet tall. Mm-hmm. We can do this with a very small number of troops on the ground supported by you know, U.S. aircraft overhead, empowering local people like the, the Sunni tribes of that, that – uh, that united against the same bad bad guys, you know, what, what was al-Qaeda in Iraq back in 2006, you know, in, in what they called the Anbar Awakening, uh, when, when the Sunni tribes rose up against, against al-Qaeda, what, what's now ISIS. Um, so we can do this, um, and uh, it just takes some leadership to, to explain why it's necessary to do that. So what does the next commander-in-chief, what qualities does he or she need to have, and from an action point, what are the first three things, top three things they need to do? Because this war isn't going anyway, anywhere, anywhere, anytime soon. I, I think what they what they have to do is uh, acknowledge uh, that we currently don't have a strategy, so we have to implement a strategy to to keep America's enemies in check. And and you know the military, we we don't want to go, out, we don't want to have to go out and fight wars. But unfortunately, we have lost our ability to deter our enemies. They do not fear us in any way, shape, or form. They're, they're basically punching us in the mouth in, in places like Syria. Uh, you know, China's build, building out on islands in, in the Western Pacific and you know, South China Sea. I mean, th- these things are uh, – uh, if, if people actually were concerned about how America was going to react and step up to that, then, then we wouldn't – you know, we wouldn't have an issue. And we, we don't want to have to go fight wars. We want our enemies to, to be kept in check just by simply the threat that we don't want to mess, mess with those guys. And when it comes to that, you know, we, we talk about this in leadership. When you're trying to push your team to achieve standards, we have a mantra that we use, and that's it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. And that's something that I think we need to Im- immediately implement in, in our foreign policy that, uh, you know, when you're talking about our, our nation's enemies, we can we can talk of speeches all day long and say say things and establish red lines, you know, at a press conference. Uh, but it's, it's actually what we tolerate that matters. And our enemies see that and uh, and they, they, they see what they're going to be able to get away with. And what we've shown them for the last uh, six or seven years is that we're going to let them get away with pretty much whatever the hell they want to do. We don't even call them enemy, right? That's true. We can't even acknowledge them as enemies. Even in the military documents, you don't call them enemy. 
what, what uh, and you know, are, you, are we going? Are we are we scared of hurting their feelings? Yeah. Um, just to not have a clear vision, mm-hmm. you know. If you talk about what the what a what a what type of leader we'd need to be president, someone that just puts a nice, simple, clear vision of where we're going. For instance, with this ISIS piece, you know, what are we going to do? Right now, we're we're in that gray area that you're talking about, and like I said, that gray area is okay on a near term to figure out how the battle is going to evolve, but. We can't even see what that long-term vision is right now of what we're trying to accomplish. That's not a good. John, how's the book tour been doing? It's been it's been incredible. We've had some great publicity. The response we're getting from uh, the re- people that have read it has been phenomenal, mm-hmm. and we we I don't think we could actually ask for anything more in terms of the publicity we've gotten and the and the feedback that we're getting. You know, we did we did a book signing, um, and it was a two-day conference that we went to, and we signed books the, the first day and we signed books the second day well the first day the second day people came back they bought more books said i read the whole book last night this is awesome I'm giving it to you know everyone i know so it's been it's just been incredible and where can we get the book you, you can get it uh amazon barnes and noble i mean uh, book pal for our, our bulk orders mm-hmm. uh it's extreme ownership how u.s navy seals lead and win and uh just just available just about anywhere well gentlemen thank you so much Thanks for having us on the show. Thanks for having us. Ladies and gentlemen, wise words from two of our nation's greatest patriots. Make sure you get the book. Thank you all for listening. Your comments and your followers so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead. 